Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. And this time we have a very special episode for you as we're discussing a brand new release, The Lost Weekend, A Love Story, a documentary detailing May Pang's account of her relationship with John Lennon that spanned a tumultuous 18-month period, famously known as Lennon's Lost Weekend. And if you haven't already, we'd urge you to go back and seek out our special bonus episode that we released in April, where we had the opportunity to interview May all about the film, her relationship with John, and even what it was like being the designated driver for the Hollywood Vampires. And when we released that episode, you very teasingly said uh, that you th- thought the film would ruffle a few feathers. Yeah. Care to elaborate? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's hard to count the, the feathers it's ruffled, <laughs> you know. I, it, it was interesting like, interviewing May about this because we didn't get the impression, I think, that she was particularly interested in having a public spat with Yoko Ono. But I think she came across as someone who's very, very motivated by having had lots of other people tell her story for a long time and just wanting to uh, make her own voice heard. She seemed like very motivated by that. Just, you know, and, you know, there is some stuff in this film, of course, that doesn't paint Yoko Ono in a good light. And I think that may be slightly controversial as far as Beatles fans are concerned. But also, like, you know, May has every right to tell her story. And it's great that this film like, gives her the opportunity to do that. She's an important voice, you know, in uh, in the Beatles story. 
Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? This, this film coming at this time because we've remarked a lot on the fact that recent projects that have come out of the Beatles camp seem to want to correct the narrative around Yoko Ono mm. and and probably undo the the lot the damage that would have been done to her reputation throughout the many years with with her being positioned as the villain of the Beatles story. Yeah. And a lot of the recent projects, and Get Back is a key one, seems like it's trying to promote a reappraisal of her relationship with the rest of the Beatles and um, and, and and her part in that story. Yeah. And then this film feels completely out of step with that, because this yes. film is very much saying she was dominating, a dominating figure in John's life, yeah. and suggests that in many ways, not in every way but in many ways that was detrimental to um to what was right for john at that time yeah uh and one one of the the, the key things i think is is his relationship with julian which may in this film may takes credit for and i think it's accepted actually that may is is sort of the one to be credited for reconnecting the two yeah so this this film sort of explores more of that and how that came about and 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 actually sees that through to fruition, I guess, with a um, sort of a, a nice sweet coda that the film ends on. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's you know it's important to set it in context of how sort of Beatles fans uh, as a whole uh, seem to feel about Yoko Ono these days. You know, so there, there were years and years where everyone thought well this this is the evil dragon lady who broke up the Beatles because she wanted John Lennon all to herself and uh you know that narrative kind of uh, persisted for quite a long time there were like very unflattering portraits of her you know jo- jokes about her singing and all this kind of stuff you know L- Linda McCartney went through this uh, to a slightly lesser extent as well uh, just being rid- ridiculed for her own creative talents uh almost by the sort of just by dint of the, the, the sort of daring to be sort of proximate, you know, artistically to their husbands, you know. And so recent, I mean, Get, Get Back wasn't the only thing that sort of has rehabilitated Yoko Ono, but uh, it was it, it was a big step in it. So, you know, uh, it, what had always been thought was that she was a sort of interfering presence in the studio, a uh, story about, uh, you know, George, George got annoyed because she ate his chocolate biscuits and she was like lying on a bed in the studio um all this stuff and and actually like in get back you see her she basically just kind of sits there and knits and reads the paper most of the time and and she doesn't speak all that much now get back will certainly have cut out a fair bit of stuff where she where she did talk more than that but you know as may said in our interview about get back you know the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle about how interfering she was if you yes know. yeah uh, and i think it's it's interesting you, you say that about the fan community for a long time positioning Yoko as, as that kind of role in the Beatles story. Yeah. But May has clearly fallen foul of that herself from that community. Mm. I think she's been often sidelined as John's mistress. Yeah, I guess unless you're, you know, a, sort of a, a hardcore fan, probably don't know the extent of their relationship. Yeah. I certainly wasn't aware before seeing this film exactly how long their relationship lasted. Yeah. I think you'd be forgiven if you were a peripheral fan of thinking that John's Lost Weekend lasted a weekend. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> genuinely, I think you would, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, in my head, I, I thought it was more closer to a year. 
Yeah. Uh, and this this film sort of explores in great detail the the full eighteen month relationship between uh, the two of them. Mm. Um, but it's interesting that because because I don't think May can win either way. I, I think she's unfairly sidelined. Uh, or has been unfairly sidelined for a very long time. Mm. She's made this film now where it is telling her side of the story for the first time, in which she adds, I think, to the previous rhetoric around Yoko being sort of a villainous figure. Mm. But I don't think it, I don't think fans are going to suddenly side with May either. Like it's not, you know, I, I think generally among that fan community, there's always a bit of a bias, uh, like you say, around sort of the female figures in the Beatles' lives. Yeah, but I think hopefully they can appreciate, uh, uh, you know, a bit of nuance. Mm. You, know. <laughs> you know, I'd you like say to hopefully. Think... <laughs> no, I'd like to think so. No, I mean, I, I think actually uh, Beatles fans. Now, I'm talking about the sort of general online fan community that we're, we're sort of a, a, a loose part of, um, is, is much more positive in general uh, and just sort of less polarised. Mm. Actually, the the fandom that I'm talking about is the sort of traditional like, post-Rolling Stone interview fandom right. who, you know, just sort of uh, hold, hold Lennon up as a saint, you know. Uh, and sort of dismiss uh, McCartney's inputs and like really can't stand Yoko Ono. And it's mainly just because, you know, she's a woman who like dared to get close to, uh, you know, their fav- their favourite artist, you know, yes. uh, and they sort of don't, don't like that interference. And a foreign woman as well. Oh, I shouldn't go on said, right? Because she, she was terribly foreign. She was terribly <laughs> foreign. <laughs> but, but also a, a reason why I imagine, you know, we, we're, we're talking about a, a general sexist attitude, to, attitude towards Yoko. Mm. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a casual racist one as well. Yeah. And I think both of those things obviously apply to, to May when those same fans would consider her role um, before now. So, yeah. uh, so, but now we have this film that gives a voice to May's own side of the story, which is mm. a, an important missing piece that we haven't had until now. Yeah. So we should probably dig into, what is it exactly that this film says that I think conflicts with what we have known previously about her part in John's life? So I think the sort of official narrative, or at least the narrative that has come from uh, the, the sort of Yoko Ono camp, you know, Camp Yoko, um, it, it has always been that the way things played out was uh, May Pang was the personal assistant to the Lennons uh, in New York. And um, at some point, Yoko thought it would be healthy for John to have an affair and for he and Yoko to have some time apart. And she said to May Pang, uh, if John makes a pass at you, don't refuse him. And that he then did. And then May accepted that pass. And then they sort of uh, went off and had sort of like quite a a casual affair. uh, And then John sort of like, you know, came back when Yoko was ready to take him back. You know, Mm. What, what May says in this film is that it was more like Yoko said to her, I want you to have an affair with my husband, you know, which is not a sentence you hear every day, you know. Uh, and... Um, Says you. I hear it all the time. <laughs> and um, uh, so May initially said, no, I'm not interested in that. Um, so, you know, she says, you know, she she was a sort of teenage Beatles fan, uh, but, you know, she came to work for the Lennons, but she didn't feel that way about John. And, um, but then Yoko was insistent, like, no, you know, you have to have an affair with him. Uh, And May refused. And then sort of later on, when sort of John came to her under his own steam, 
um, that she sort of then became attracted to him, uh, and that then they sort of began their affair, if you if you want to call it that. But that it, that it was a, a love affair, you know, and um, not a sort of fling or a bit on the side. But you know, they were in in love and they were a proper couple for eighteen months. Um, and there's also uh, the, the the claim it makes that I I wasn't aware of before certainly was the idea that after they separated, jo- and John went back to Yoko ultimately, John and May sort of continued to see each other and and, and be intimate is the the phrase being used when they saw each other like up up until i think about 1977 and then i think they didn't see each other again after that uh so you you ba- we basically are left with sort of two conflicting versions of events yeah and i think this film does a very very good job of convincing it's convincing its audience to actually what what may may is saying is what happened like you watch this film and you believe that john and may were very much in love mm-hmm which, which is just interesting in itself to see that that you know that part of the story played out and um, and explored in this documentary, and I think it would be very easy, and it probably will become this way, to have a lot of debate over who is telling the truth. But I think why, the reason why this film is so interesting to watch is just that it is a fresh perspective at yeah, all, yeah. one that we haven't heard at all before, and you know if. If we've had this story told previously only from Yoko, it it kind of doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. It's mm. just interesting to be able to hear May's own version of events, yeah. just so that we've got a fuller picture um, of, of that period, just by virtue of having an, another voice add to uh, add to the story. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, this is what at this stage in sort of um, the sort of collating of Beatle history. Uh, this is what we're all looking for, right? You know, new n- new perspectives, new you know pe- people telling their side of the story that we didn't have before, and the the idea behind it is not to say, ah, well, oh, okay, this person's saying this, therefore this person must have been lying. You know, it's not like, oh, this 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 story is definitely true, and therefore this one is definitely untrue. It, it, it's more just that you know now we have different people's sides of the story. This is this is how. You know, I'm not a historian, as you know, but you know, uh, this is Don't say yourself short. Sure. <laughs> but this is this is how history is written, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, by by virtue of the fact that different people have different sides of it, and you you put them all together, uh, and then you write the Wikipedia page, and everyone yes, reads that. Exactly. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah, as long as you're quoting all the sources, yeah. always check the source. My history teacher used to say. Yeah. So everything is history. Just you know, make sure you know who's the one who's uh, saying it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think when I recited this podcast that I'd be bringing Mr. Marshall into this, but uh, I credit him nonetheless. Where is he now? <laughs> Dead. Um, <laughs> who's telling his story? That's what I want to know. Me, apparently, on this podcast. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, it's only my version, though. One of the things, that, and it's really, this is really an awful area to to get into and discuss, and it's because. You know, we were fortunate to have time with May, and she was just an absolute joy to speak with. Mm. Having watched this film, I'm left with a huge amount of respect for her. It's almost upsetting to to know that for most of her life since this period, she would have been accused of trying to exploit her relationship with John for her own gain. Mm. You know, she's written two books, and or she's released this film now. Uh, I thought it was interesting that the I mean, the, the film has littered throughout it lots of sort of chat show appearances and uh, interviews with 
a younger May. John's former mistress, May Pang, has given the world her version of John in her book of some years ago called Loving John. May, welcome. Thank you. You know, we uh, go back a long way. Yes, we do. So to speak. We met, uh, I guess, back in 1971, 1972. That 71. 71, you were working for John. I was friendly with him. He did a benefit concert at my urging, etc. I remember when your book came out, uh, your book about your affair with John. I remember being very angry at you because at that time there had been... Goldman's book obviously wasn't out yet. There was the public's image of John. There was Strawberry Fields, the park dedicated to his memory in Central Park. There uh, were other kinds of testimonials to the man's greatness, to his music. And what you wrote about was something else. You wrote about a very fragile man, a man who had some real problems. Um, wh why did you do it? Why did you tell that story? I told that story only because I got tired of other people writing about our situation, our affair as you call it, um, it was so different. He was not always drunk, and I had to explain that. I think it's very pointed that this film starts with one question in particular, which is around uh, maybe being asked what she would say to fans who would accuse her of exploiting John for money. Yeah. And the younger May at that time says, I'm just trying to tell my side of the story. Yeah. And it's a really good introduction to the film because it sets up this idea that this is all this is. It's yep. just her side of the story. There's no agenda other than for her to try to correct a narrative that she sees as being false in some respects. Yeah. But it also, I think, it starts off with a defence for the film existing in the first place. Yeah. Because I, I imagine there is, there, there could still be that accusation levelled just the, the fact that she's made this story. Like, and I, I think a lot of it, unfortunately, comes from this ideal reputation of her being John's mistress, and it's such a reductive term. Yeah, you know, that this idea that this documentary—if you come at this from a place of ignorance—you kind of could write it off as like a kiss and tell story yeah, yeah, you know yeah. um and it's obviously it's so much more than that and i kind of re really respect that the film kind of tackled that question head on yeah. by just having that scene before any of the credits start um it was just kind of a kind of a neat thing to do to set up its own conceit yeah i think so like it's it, it's sort of getting its defense in early if you like you know and it, it perhaps uh like you know when, when when we when we spoke to may um she uh she sort of made clear that in terms of the putting together of the documentary, she was quite hands off. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't think it will necessarily have been her decision or her influence that sort of begins the film with that. You know, that's very much the filmmakers, it seems to me, who are trying to make this point. You know, that's right. This, yeah, this, and that makes sense. Yeah. You know, this this is this woman's story. She doesn't. You know, and she's not. She's not like trying to profit from it. You know. Um, you know, as she as she said to us, you know, if she'd profited from it, then you know she'd be richer than she is. Yes, yeah, but she didn't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that was yeah. really funny, wasn't it? She like talking, you know, say, asking her that question about um, how she feels about people considering her exploiting John for money, and mm. she was very much like, "Well, where's the money?" <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah. is a very good um, uh, argument. Uh, having said all of that, though, the fact that the film has an agenda at all, mm. do we think that's problematic? Because, you know, to a certain extent, you want a documentary to be a, a historical and factual account. But because this is such a personal account, and because it's so clearly set out with the 
challenge of trying to correct the the current existing narrative. Mm. How effective do we think it is in being a uh, a film in its own terms? I, I mean, I mean, history is always written by someone, right? You mm. know, so there's a, there's always a point of view to it. Um, I actually don't really share the idea that do, uh, documentaries are ever really or can ever really be just like a, a factual telling of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in many ways, there is no such thing as a factual telling of events. There's always a perspective. Documentaries will always tell a story and uh, therefore they will pretty much always push a narrative of some kind. They're always telling it from some uh, some perspective or another. So like, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for this film to have an agenda because I think most documentaries do it one way or another, whether it's um, malign or benign, you know, um, it, 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 it's always like pushing an agenda of, of some sort. So no, like it doesn't, it doesn't feel problematic on those grounds to me. That is fair enough. And you're right. I, th- I think maybe the fact that it wears that agenda on its sleeve is to its credit. Yeah. I think that the question about uh, how much value the documentary has when it's a personal account rather than an unbiased account is subjective. Yeah. What we could look at is how the film objectively achieves that. Uh, and I'm thinking about there are some moments in the film where I feel like it's not quite clear on uh, some of the details that I think would support what it's trying to do. Mm. One of those is there is a moment in the film where we learn that May and John split up for a brief period. Yeah. Following a, a violent outburst from John. Yeah, and she came back from Los Angeles and went back to New York for a little while mm. on her own. Yeah, and in in the documentary, we learned that Yoko actually called her and basically convinced her to get back together with John. Yeah, and what we hear through the narration is that uh, May realised after that phone call that it would have been John who asked Yoko to do that on his behalf. Yeah. What I'm left confused by is what exactly is Yoko's role in their relationship at this point? Yeah. Because I think up and up until that point in the film, we are led to understand that Yoko is resentful of their relationship. Yeah. So I'm confused by what motive she would have by helping John uh, and them get back together. Yeah. Um. And and not saying it's kind of like you know hidden ulterior motive and stuff but I don't think the film does necessarily does a good job of explaining right. how the three of them fit together yeah. uh, during that time yeah uh, and also like for our interview um, May had said that one of you know one of the big misconceptions uh, about her relationship with John was is that people don't realise that Yoko was actually in uh, constant contact with John during yeah. that whole period yeah the film doesn't necessarily touch on that enough uh, or really try to explain why that was or, you know, what kind of relationship John was having with Yoko whilst he was in a relationship with May. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think um, this is what, one of those bits where the accounts are almost sort of directly conflicting. So El- Elliot Mintz, who is a sort of spokesperson for the uh, the, the Ono Lennons and in particular spokesperson for, for Yoko since John died, that what, what he said was that, during this period, John was phoning Yoko every day, just sort of begging her to be able to come back. You know, mm. now you should take what Elliot Mintz says with a bit of a pinch of salt because he's you know, like extremely close to that that camp. Doesn't mean he's 
making it up, but it does mean you should, you know, that that, that is the context in which you should, <laughs> in which you should view things that he says. You know, Mr. Marshall, my old history teacher, coming into play again. Consider the source <laughs> exactly, yeah. and uh, and and in the film, uh, this this violent outburst of John's that led to the sort of brief separation was sort of it was a drunken one where. May and uh, Jim Keltner was there, uh, and uh, maybe Harry Nielsen as well. They had to sort of get him in the car and drive back. And in the film, it says, you know, he was he was sort of screaming over and over again. And they got back to this house they were renting, and he smashed up lots of stuff. So n- none of this is disputed particularly. There's a detail in Philip Norman's book, John Lennon, The Life, where it's not just that he was screaming, it's that he was crying out, Yoko's name over and over again. So apparently that's what Jim Jim Keltner said to Philip Norman. So you know, again, you know, it, it, maybe it's that um, this detail has been left out. You know, it's not something May wants to remember. You know, it, it may be that she doesn't it doesn't remember it in the same way. Maybe that Jim Keltner doesn't remember it in the same way. Who knows? You know, uh, again, this is all just kind of different perspectives. You know, the point is is not to sort of like relitigate these arguments. Uh, and it's certainly not to pit anyone against each other. It's just, you know, it's just valuable to get these different perspectives because mm-hmm. so far we've really only had one. You yeah, know? and it reminds me a little bit of where we talked before in, it might be, it was either the Brian Epstein story or the Sgt. Pepper story where we, we discussed how some of the talking heads often tell an anecdote about a time uh, that we know from the Beatles period but they put themselves at the centre of that story yeah, because they're telling yeah. it from their own perspective. Yeah, yeah. And and in in doing so, they slightly shift how that story is presented. Yeah. But it's only because they're in the middle of it, or they're telling their own perspective of that. See, it's, it's human nature, really. Yeah. Just to sort of remember yourself at the centre of uh, of things and to tell things from your own perspective, you know. And and yes, I mean there are some of those documentaries. You know, there are people who, you know, this is like. Their main connection to the Beatles, so they kind of like play it, play it up a bit. Yeah, yeah. You know. uh, but no, I mean, they think it doesn't necessarily mean that anyone's lying or being disingenuous. It just means it's it's quite natural just to um, remember things uh, in relation to yourself. You know, it makes sense. If you're if you're the guy that has been telling your mates down the pub for decades that you're the first person that introduced Brian Epstein to the Beatles, yeah, and then suddenly you have a chance to actually talk that story in a documentary, you're not going to suddenly. <laughs> tell it how it is factually correct you're going to say exactly yeah. what you've been saying to your mates as it has been embellished over the last 20 years or so yeah. because otherwise you lose face <laughs> yeah absolutely but also over those 20 years that that story has probably shifted in in your head yes to yeah. you've told it often enough that it's like you know the bits that you were embellishing or even making up just kind of seem quite true yeah, to you now yeah, yeah. you know um so you know the, the sort of nature of people's truth will will shift with time I think you know so deep I know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I was really impressed by in this film is that at her age she was 22 yep so 10 years younger than John yep I think it would be easy without watching this film to think of her as like a naive young girl who's caught up in sort of a glamorous seductive relationship with an older role model yeah but actually what this film does is prove i think that she was really strong-willed and a very capable person before she even embarked on her career with john you know Mm. she 
she was forthright in actually getting a job at Apple in the first place. Um, yeah. And she uh, was John and Yoko's personal assistant. Uh, and, and the film explores some of the tasks that she had as a personal assistant. And often not easy. This isn't like sort of general admin. This isn't like, you know, filing their taxes. This mm. is sort of being creatively involved in their wardrobe choices for certain yeah. photo shoots. Yep. And, and even later on, when, when the film goes on to a little bit about the, uh, I think it's the, the Toots and the Snore session, the, the famous jam session, yep. you know, it has Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney all playing together with, with John. And, and the, the film explains that it was actually May that was the person responsible for getting all of the equipment to the house where they did that and the recording equipment and so she was she was a facilitator yeah a very capable facilitator at a young age yeah yeah um and, and i think that's it's really good to see how she comes across as a sort of as a, an independently important figure yeah that isn't just defined by sort of a you know googly-eyed naive girl in love <laughs> yeah. you know yeah 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 i mean you know there's a lot there's a, there's a lot in this story about sort of female empowerment you know and um it, you know may comes across as like a very sort of strong independent woman like now and then a bit at the start you sort of very briefly get her sort of family history at the start and like you know her, her mother being a sort of very strong woman you know seems to have been an inspiration to her but yeah i mean she is uh, she she's organizing all this stuff she's you know She's being a production assistant uh, on these records. She's, you know, she's getting uh, lots of big egos together at the same time. Yeah, so it's, you know, John Lennon, Phil Spector, you know, uh, Harry Nielsen, all these people, like, um, getting them all to, to to behave for long enough to even record, you know, is um, is pretty amazing, you know. And yeah, for for someone to have been able to do that at her young age, indicates like a certain you know steeliness you know a, a, a strong will you know and uh, and someone who's just you know very uh, very capable so you know i suppose th- this is maybe one of the things that um certainly may have suffered from her story being sort of sidelined but i think perhaps part of the reason why she hasn't come in for the same sort of ire that yoko only did over the years that Yoko Ono sort of got involved creatively and musically with John in in a visible way. I.e., she was singing on records with John, yeah. which May never did. Oh, she's a uh, her voice is on Number Nine Dream, isn't it? But um, yeah, but not she's in speaking. A, yeah. But yeah, but uh, but other than that, you know, she's a production assistant. She's like helping to facilitate things. You know, I think if her if she'd been singing on the records, people probably would have felt quite differently about her. I think she might have come in for a, a bit more of that. You know, and I think the impression you get from the film is that one of the reasons why her relationship with John was so successful was because it was in massive contrast to the relationship he had with Yoko until that point where they'd become this sort of inseparable brand in the public eye. And through his relationship with May uh, and and taking a trip away and getting away from Yoko and from his sort of other responsibilities uh, and stuff, 
I, I guess he was able to enjoy the pretense of having a bit of a normal life and being in a normal relationship for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's it's clear in the film that there's a reason that John kept that relationship and that sort of legitimized affair yeah. um, secret yeah. and, and away from the media. Yeah. Uh, was because I guess the, one of the things that he liked about it most was that it wasn't the big, you know, John and Yoko, some you know, greater than some of its parts relationship that everyone knows, and he was actually just being able to be a normal guy. Yeah, you can you can see it in like interviews he's giving in the documentary where, um, uh, like she it, she's off camera. There there seems to be no uh, urge in him to sort of like get May on camera, mm. you know, or or to sort of. Um, to say, you know, this is my girlfriend and also my creative collaborator, you know. And so, you know, one reading of that is that he doesn't want Yoko to see it because he's still kind of holding a candle for her. And another reading of it is that, as you say, he's just kind of enjoying the the normality of it, you know. Uh, much more of this thing of just, I'm an artist and I do this work and I have this girlfriend. Like, you don't yeah. need to, you, you know, you don't need to speak to her necessarily. Yeah, she goes know. to another school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I do think it is interesting, though, like, you know, when we talk about how capable May was and, and how uh, influential she was in sort of organising elements of John's life that he does seem to attract relationships with people that tend to be quite dominant in nature. Yeah. Uh, not to say that May was, but like he, you know, there's, there's this sort of this interesting complex psychological thing with John isn't there where he's clearly a very intelligent person capable of very sort of profound um, insights. But at the same time, you know, we get pictures of him painted uh, as a sort of a petulant boy trapped in a man's body sometimes yeah. and stuff. And and I think you know the, the the image of him and Yoko is that Yoko is quite a dominant figure in his life, and John almost acting a little bit submissive yeah. to her in that relationship. Is I, I, I it doesn't seem from this documentary that was uh, there, there was a similar dynamic here with May, but it is interesting that he's still clearly was attracted to someone who was capable of organising his life yeah. uh, in a way. And and also, <laughs> as we see in this, this documentary, uh, help make improvements to his life. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, he seems seems to have liked sort of being mothered in a way. You know, I mean, uh, it doesn't take a professional psychologist to sort of jump, jump to the conclusion that, uh, you know, the events of his childhood might have left him in a situation where, you know, he was quite open to to a mother figure he certainly did with Yoko yeah and yes I think it seems like uh he enjoyed like he was quite sort of lazy by nature and I think yes he just quite enjoyed having people organize things for him so he didn't have to do it you know and, and fair enough you know? yeah. and I think uh, that uh it's also useful that he has someone like that in his life when he's choosing to hang out with the likes of Harry Nilsson mm. <laughs> and uh Alice Cooper you know, as part of the Hollywood vampire set, yeah. obviously, you know, he's a he's attracting a, a certain group of friends at that point. And I think it's useful that he's uh, with someone who's able to sort of keep some of that in check. Yeah. To seemed... whatever extent they make it. Yeah, it, it does seem that way. I, I think but there are sort of lots of sort of differing accounts of this period. But the thing that almost everyone seems to agree on is that during this period, John seemed quite settled, quite relaxed. 
and uh, and just like quite open. May told us about like you know George Harrison saying, "Oh, like you know, I'm glad I'm glad she's with you," and also like him being open to or more comfortable with just sort of receiving Paul and Linda as like surprised guests at their uh, apartment in New York, and, you know, and just just able to do that in in, in less you know without too much complication. It, it's it's an odd contradiction. Most of John, you know, pretty much anything about John Lennon is, tends to be contradictory, you know. But I mean, the the contradiction about this time in his life is he seems to have been quite settled and quite relaxed. But I think also just almost seems to have had this need for chaos in his life, uh, or, or just an instinct to visit chaos upon himself, you know. So I mean, you're all settled. You're like quite enjoying yourself. You're going to make this new record of like rock and roll standards, partly to like fulfill the uh, conditions of like have the settlement for having been sued uh, by Morris Levy uh, for nicking the first line of of the <laughs> of the Chuck Berry song "You Can't Catch Me" for "Come Together." Yeah, come on, flat top. He was moving up with me, then come waving goodbye and a little old. And you think, oh great, this would be this would be great. I can uh, I can make this album of rock and roll standards. I've always wanted to do this. Who shall I get to produce it? Oh, how about Phil Spector? He'll be a calming influence. Yeah, you know, I'm sure he won't let off a gun in the studio or anything like that. You know, it it does. It, it's it's an odd thing to do, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. it reminds um, me of the point in the film where he's the, after hanging out with uh, the rest of the Hollywood Vampire set and. It is implied that John's like, well, we should do something with our time mm. rather than just go out and get drunk and take drugs and just be wild. We should be productive. Uh, let's make an album. And the way to do that would just be to hire a house and all live together. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> whereas previously we were being wild for, you know, a, several hours in an evening, let's all live together and be in each other's company 24-7. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, uh, I think that's... And he, but he even makes a joke about that himself in that interview, where he's like, "It did not work out." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, no, it does. It does seem to be. I, I sort of get the impression a lot with John Lennon that what what he couldn't abide was just sort of like stasis, really. Mm. It, like, even though, again, it's contradictory that he was quite lazy, and you know, quite capable of just sort of back in the mid 60s when he sort of first moved out of london into the uh the sort of stockbroker belt was quite capable when they had time off of just doing nothing for day, like days at a time but I, I i just think that he seems to have been influenced by a sort of constant desire for change other than the last five years of his life where he was you know mainly living quite a sheltered life you know, in the Dakota and sort of going on on holidays and looking after Sean. I think he sort of seemed quite settled then. Other than that, he just always seems to have not been that good at just standing still for a long time. You know? It's interesting you mention that because I, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in that period where he he does seem to settle and become sort of a play, playing the role of domestic house husband mm. um, for for a few years. And uh, I think what is interesting about that is just the fact that it seems to fly in the face of everything else we know about John up until that point. Yeah. But then this film also kind of does add an extra dimension to that because this idea that actually um, him and May would have still been in touch at some point during that period. Yeah. Um, which which sort of just doesn't contradict it, but it just adds an extra layer onto that as well. Just an, an, an yeah. something else to sort of add into the mix about that. You know, it's not not just five years of staying at home, 
being a dad and baking bread. It was, yeah. you know, there, there was, there was other stuff obviously happening at the same time. Yeah. Whether that is occasional dalliances with May or, you know, whatever, who knows? Mm. Um, but it's just interesting to just add, have some more color on that period as well, no matter how small. Yeah. I think it, also that that sort of five year period, you know, up until they sort of record double fantasy, the, the story goes, it might be in one of the documentaries actually said, you know, I, I, I hung the guitar up above the bed and I didn't take it down for five years. You know, the, the narrative has always been that he, he did absolutely nothing creative at all mm-hmm. in that period. If you read Kenneth Womack's book, 1980, uh, John Lennon, 1980, The Last last Days in the Life, he, he talks a lot about, you know, th- throughout that period, it's true that, uh, that John was not creating much, um, but he was sort of tinkering with ideas. In particular, he was quite keen on like trying to write a musical uh, he was trying to write a musical called The Ballad of John and Yoko, I think. Uh, um, and, you know, there's there's all these demos. It's like, you know, Free, Free as a Bird, you know, comes out of that period, as does right. Real Love. You know, Real Love was a song he was tinkering with for years in sort of various different guises, you know. So he was creating things, you know, around that time. So, yeah, I think that narrative of just he did nothing for five years, it's really difficult to imagine that a, yeah, guy, yeah. a guy like that creates nothing for five years. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Going back to May and her influence in John's life, a key part of this film is something that a lot of people probably won't have realised, although I think it's, it's a sort of accepted truth. Um, and has been for a while, that it was May that reconnected John with his son Julian. Yeah. And this film is, I mean, again, it comes with a really quite dark moment, this sort of uh, animated illustration of Julian calling calling his dad, May answering the phone as she did, but being told beforehand that all calls need to be run by Yoko for vetting yeah and there's this animated um, sequence where we see Yoko cut the phone wire with scissors mm. because she she basically refuses to let Julian speak to John at that point yeah, yeah. Uh, and and there is a it's interesting isn't it because you know there is no matter how how much truth there is in that there, there could be a hundred reasons why Yoko uh, has said no don't pass the phone through to John at this time yeah but the fact that the animation 
tell you know it shows us Yoko cutting the line of scissors is like mm. I'm cutting the you know, the connection between yeah because uh, I don't want them to have anything to do with each other so it's very right. sort of a, a, a sort of quite a, a quite a powerful image that is is very very negative around Yoko. yeah but onto the positive stuff yeah May reconnecting John and Julian clearly huge influence. Uh, on John's life at that period and really nice to see that played out in this film and and to have like a proof point for May's uh, importance in John's life. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's really nice to see how close she and Julian still are. And and also May and Cynthia got on very well as well, you know, in, mm-hmm. in that sort of, you got the impression that they, they had like uh, quite a quite a healthy relationship in a way that sort of two two women who had loved one man at different times in their life often can like find that sort of co- common ground, I suppose. And I think it seems to be that. So I think Julian was going to come out to visit, and then uh, John sort of invited Cynthia as well. I think as a spur of the moment thing, or maybe with some cajoling from May, or she was going to come out and she was also she was going to stay with a friend, and then that fell through. So she went to Disneyland with John and May and Julian as well. And Cynthia says that May was just really good in that situation at recognising that it was awkward, recognising that John didn't want to be left alone with Cynthia too much and just sort of taking on that responsibility of like making sure Cynthia wasn't left on her own and, you know, and, and you know, she had someone to talk to all the time and things like that, you know. And, I mean, th- those two women uh, stayed very close, I, I think, up until Cynthia's death. And I think there's... There's even a story where sometime in the 80s when people would congregate around the Strawberry Fields Memorial in Central Park, maybe on the anniversary of his death, that there was once where uh, they were together in New York and they actually went down uh, together to that memorial and sort of anonymously mm. uh, stood and were part of that crowd, you know. I just think that the um, that story about May taking it upon herself to accompany Cynthia it's just I can't get my head around like how much maturity she had to do that at her age. Yeah, you know, yeah. like I just think like maybe it says a lot about me now, but like at twenty two, I just can't imagine being <laughs> the grown up in that situation. No, and true. Yeah. I, I find it hard enough to make small talk now. Like <laughs> you know, like yeah, just yeah, 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 yeah. can't imagine that. But it's just yeah, it just it, it's it, there are so many moments. Uh, that are told in this film that just all add up to a huge amount of respect for me and not in a n- not in a contrived way like yeah. it, it feels like a you know like a truthful picture that that is is painted of her yeah definitely you know i think you know she's sort of really she really sort of earns her place as a significant figure in sort of the the telling of uh, of sort of beetle history if you like you know i mean not least because there's there's so much in this documentary where there's lots of sort of new photos and things that she took that come from her own archives, you know, but also, you know, ones we've seen before where she's been present for some, some very big moments. So she took, I think, what is the last known picture of John and Paul together, um, sitting by that pool in, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, she also, when John finally signed the contract that put an end to the Beatles, when he signed it at, at Disneyland, um, she, she took a picture of that, you know, She's been in the room like more than most people have been in the room. You know, yeah. she she was there at that jam session, a toot and a snore. You know, where John and Paul played together for the last time. You know, yeah. I mean, this this is a person who is who has been in these rooms and has a story to tell. And it, actually, one of the remarkable things about it is that it's taken this long 
for you know for this story to come out. I mean, she she's written books before and things, mm. but it, you know, it does feel like it, it, it's partly because we're at a very specific point in sort of Beatle history where these eyewitness accounts seem to be coming like quite thick and fast. You mm-hmm. know, um, around this time, certainly post Get Back, and as we've said before, mid Lewison. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, all, all these these accounts seem to be coming pretty thick and fast, and people are interested in them, and it, and it's kind of taking them on board. Whereas I feel like you know when May wrote those books, uh, probably they were sort of like you know I don't think they sold particularly big numbers. I don't think they would have had quite the same impacts at the time. I don't think people would have thought of them as like valuable documents in the same way that that people will and should consider this film a valuable document. Uh, uh, valuable but also you know told in a medium that will find and and probably uh land better with new audiences yeah i mean you know, who, who reads books these days yeah well, exactly yeah <laughs> it's a dead medium yeah. <laughs> and, and and through that that's where you know hopefully as a part of this she gets that sort of appraisal that she deserves yeah. you know like like you say not just from being in the room but I, I I kind of get the impression by accident. She says in in she said in her interview with her that she wasn't trying to document these important moments. Mm. She just happened to be in the room taking pictures at a time. Yeah, yeah. But she was still in the room taking pictures at a time, and that automatically makes her the the person who did document them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you know she has created some really valuable assets that have helped tell the Beatles story. Mm. Um, and they all come from her just because of her having the impulse you know to take those to take those photos whether whether or not she ever thought about them being looked at 50 years later yeah i, th- I think well like one of the ways in which the, the the film itself like uses its techniques like it's, it kind of like stresses may's significance but it also does it in quite a charming way is that it, it sort of uses this uh it uses this structure of almost like it, it reads almost like a, a, the diary of a teenage girl kind of thing, you know. So, like, you, you've got sort of illustrations on the screen that are done sort of using uh, John's style. May is narrating, so it was sort of based on interviews she'd done, and then she came and did the narration at the end. But it, it, but she is uh, narrating it, and almost in, like, quite, quite a sort of girlish way is, you know, her, her tone and the things she says, you know. Um, she's sort of ma- making clear how kind of, how sort of smitten she was, I suppose. Mm, very um, definitely. And uh, and it's quite charming in that way. It really gets across uh, like the affection of the whole thing, you know. And it really gets you away from that idea that this is the story of, you know, a groupie or or it's a kiss and tell or something like that. You know, it's quite an effective way to make that point. I think. I, I think you're right. I think there are there are tricks that the film uh, employs that just keep keeps it visually interesting, mm. uh, which is always a, a challenge. I think in any documentary. Yeah. I always quite enjoy watching modern modern documentaries that don't just uh, reach for the archive footage, but also try to do something else visually stimulating. Yeah. So, like you say, we've got the animations in the style of John's Doodles, yeah. um, but there are also like some still photos that have been given like a like a small amount of animation to them as well, just yeah. to keep sort of some sense of motion uh, happening. Yeah. And there were like you know lens flare and you know all of the sort of like yeah. modern sort of you know camera tricks yeah. but it all it makes for like a a, a sort of a, a you know an interesting story to 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 watch or play out on screen yeah and and we should talk about the music as well because i was quite interested a lot about some of the music elements of this film yeah when the film starts and the credits the opening credits play out 
I was quite taken aback that it is quite a almost like 80s style raucous wailing guitar solo yeah which I felt was a bit out of step with the Beatles and even the music that John was producing at that time yeah um but obviously as we've mentioned many times before my first thought was oh clearly there's no rights then to the Beatles mm. music which yeah. we wouldn't expect I guess for no, this uh, and the first time I noticed something a little bit out of place with that was when we actually do see John perform Imagine as part of the Imagine Music video, yeah. and we actually see that and it, and hear it, mm. which doesn't happen often. Yeah, but yeah, but it, but it's interesting, right? Because you only hear a couple of bars yeah. uh, of that, and then it goes into like an instrumental version. Yeah, a, a, like a played instrumental version. Yeah, as as opposed to his actual piano that's had the vocals taken off. But the effect is the same because it's it's synchronized with that, right? So yeah. you you hear the beginning of Imagine, you hear John sing the first like verse or something, mm. and then it it plays as though it's just his vocals that drops out. Because yeah. the piano continues, yeah, yeah. But clearly, what it is is a different track that's that's um, played afterwards. Uh, and I can only assume that that is a way to get around the copyright. That, yeah, I mean, that's what occurred to me as well. They do the same thing with "Happy Christmas War Is Over" later on. Mm. They kind of have the first, uh, you know, a verse or a couple of lines or whatever it is, and then it goes into you just sort of hear the acoustic guitar, you know. And th- I mean, this is masked as well, by the way, by the fact that narration is going on over yes, it, you know. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of presumed it was actually like at near the start when May is talking about her teenage years and being a sort of uh, sort of teenage Beatle maniac in the uh, in in the sixties. You see the Beatles on stage. I think it's probably Carnegie Hall, um, and um, and and it is not their music that is playing while mm. they're while you see them. So that's the point at which I thought, oh okay, they don't have rights to the music. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So yeah, it was quite surprising uh to then see uh but you know it's a it's, it's quite an ingenious way of doing it, it yeah. if that if that is the point of it is to get round the, uh, yeah. the copyright thing it surprises me that it's the first instance we've seen of that in any of our documentaries where it yeah. feels like a, a workaround yeah yeah um, but it does also make me wonder why didn't they do that then for the that you know the the, the scene that you mentioned for the beatles playing carnegie um, I, is it because different copyrights apply because we're talking about different different catalogues? I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. I, th- yeah, I think we're probably talking about like Lennon McCartney songs are certainly like quite hard to license. Yes, at all and, and quite and, expensive and, to license. But, but, yeah. but using this idea of the the copyright workaround, uh, maybe the risk is greater just because of there being more risk of litigious action. With Lennon and McCartney songs, yeah. Then purely Lennon, like you know, if you're taking, you know, any lawyer probably would look at precedent and think that there's probably a greater risk there. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it will be that they're sort of owned by different catalogs that have yeah. have different rules. You know, I don't think it it will be down to the risks they were willing to take. It, I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, they they will have checked out what they can and can't do. And I think a lot of the time with Lennon McCartney songs, it's it's you, you you can't use these yes and uh yeah so it may it may be that even doing that sort of truncated version where you then uh where you then have like the sort of played interpretation that carries it on uh even that just wasn't wasn't going to fly for Lennon McCartney songs yeah I don't know. yeah yeah it's interesting isn't it uh, so on the whole I, I kind of feel like the film does a few really important things it's 
really interesting to have uh, a lot of light shed on a, a time in John Lennon's life that we haven't really had an inside track on before. Mm. And that makes it quite a fascinating thing to watch yeah. and to, to have that sort of insider take on, on that whole period. I think it's really important that May is through this film giving herself the chance to tell her side of a story and, and for us to have that new fresh perspective. Yeah. But on the whole, and you, you touched on it earlier, uh, I, I think the the film succeeds mostly because of that idea that even taking everything into account it really does come across like the story of a 22 year old in love yeah you know and that's where a lot of the charm comes from and and like you said like may even in her narration even now in narration and even when we interviewed her the way she talks about it yeah there's that sense of smittenness that that comes through um and and that's just really endearing isn't it? She so she comes. She very much comes across as an endearing figure through the film. Yeah, it's quite it's quite touching as well. I, I think uh, at at the end, uh, I think it's the first time that you see her like, at, at, as she is now, as opposed to images and videos uh, from the seventies, um, where she's actually be, being interviewed uh, on the you know towards the end of the film, and she is she's talking about the fact that she didn't really have as she did a little bit in in our interview. She's kind of talking about how. You know, it, it, she didn't really get any closure, you know, and like the last time, you know, wh- when sort of John went back to Yoko, he he just seemed a bit sort of out of it. And when John, you know, sort of eventually went back to Yoko, you know, they seen each other for that dental appointment, which is yes. a really, really odd way to, you know, to uh, to sort of end a relationship, you know, turning up at the dentist together. You know. uh, but when she talks about it now, uh, she's like slightly teary about it, you know, and... Uh, and bear in mind, this is this is a relationship that ended fifty or forty five years ago, and and that in the intervening time, she got married and uh, had uh, two children, you know, and had a happy marriage until it ended, and you know, and and like a, fu- a fulfilling life certainly. But still, you can tell that there there is something about this relationship that stays with her. Uh, it still upsets her a little bit to talk about how, how it ended, you know, and that's really remarkable, you know, and I think. That that really plays in to the film's charm. You, you really get the depth of feeling associated with mm. this, you know. And there's no way you could watch this and conclude that this was a a, a fling, you know. It really uh, it makes the film's case quite persuasive, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's it. I think you touched on it there. That's a a powerful story, a powerful relationship, but told charmingly. Yeah. Charming and powerful. That feels like that's what I would put on the poster. <laughs> but charming and powerful. There we go. That's that's uh, take that as the recommendation. Uh, so there we go. Charming and powerful. Get in touch with us and let us know what you thought of the film. Uh, you can reach us on all the usual social media platforms. We are at Beatles Films Pod. You can also leave us a review or a five star rating. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, you can do that on your podcast listening platform of choice. Um, and if we haven't plugged it enough throughout this episode. Please do go back and listen to our interview that we published back in April. Uh, it was really good opportunity for us to speak to May herself and uh, to ask her all of the important questions that we had for her after watching the film. Otherwise, we'll be back again soon with a new episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.